Please open your Bibles again to Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. If you have been here for Sunday school and then for the time of testimony um, <clears throat> of Steve Renzi just here in the service, you'll know that it, it has been quite a time of teaching as we've heard each person uh, read Scripture and apply Scripture to our lives. Um, it, it, in some ways it seems superfluous to now go back to Scripture and have another time of teaching. I think that uh, we should just be spending time in praise and giving thanks to the Lord. But we do have a few minutes before the end of the service, and I would like us to do, devote ourselves to the preaching of the Word, and particularly the last two verses of Colossians chapter 1. Now, before we read this text, you've heard mention, if you've been around it all this weekend, to the fact that the elders and pastors, and this preceded Rob's departure, Rob was very much a part of this, um, but we have been going through a time of self-examination of our work, my work as a pastor, my preaching, uh, the pastoral care that the elders have been giving, uh, the, the congregational work the work of the deacons, and what it is that we believe is central to God's call. And every time we've discussed this, the text that Steve read, the devotions of the church have come up again and again, devoted to the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, to fellowship and to prayer. Out of these times of discussion and self-examination, we have come up with a mission statement, which I would like to read to you, this, then, is the Church of the Good Shepherd's mission statement adopted by the elders. If you uh, know anything about the history of Presbyterianism in this country, you'll recognize that this is largely a quote from documents going back to the 18th century. But here is the mission statement of Church of the Good Shepherd. Church of the Good Shepherd's mission is to proclaim the gospel, to protect and nurture God's children, to preserve scriptural worship, to promote God's truth, and to present the kingdom of heaven on earth. Let me read it one more time. Church of the Good Shepherd's mission is to proclaim the gospel, to protect and nurture God's children, to preserve scriptural worship, to promote God's truth, and to present the kingdom of heaven on earth. We've seen this weekend the beauty of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Behold how, how beautiful it is, how perfect, how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And uh, it's kind of fitting that when everybody's coming back, Andy and Grace are leaving. And uh, there are certain people that you single out and make a big deal out of. And there are certain people you don't. And Andy and Grace, by their very nature, are hidden workers, but I have mentioned before and I'll mention this morning my gratitude to Andy particularly for the absolute faithfulness that he has demonstrated in loving and caring for the children of this church. And uh, Andy really is, along with a few others, he's sort of the first fruits of not the embryonic stage, although he went back past that, but really... Uh, Church of the Good Shepherd. He is uh, bound up with the beginning of this church. 
And then grace is uh, wonderful, graceful. Perseverance in the midst of great adversity. In the past few years, and watching her grow at a time where everything in the world cried out for her to, to throw in the towel. And uh, how much we have seen God working through them. And so, as we think of Church of the Good Shepherd and her mission, we see people coming back and we see the fruit in their lives, but then we see Andy and Grace leaving. And we have to remind ourselves that the church, although, yes, the church is people, the church really isn't people. The church is the bride of Christ, and the church is the work that he has given us to do. And he is sovereign over our children. My father, having lost a number of kids with his wife as they were growing, used to constantly remind people that uh, God gives us our children for a short time and it's completely up to him when he takes them back to himself. They're just on loan. And the same thing is true of every soul in this church. We don't own anyone. Uh, Every person here will, at God's command, move on. And our task is to be faithful to the work that he has given us to do. And how is that work summarized? Again, the mission is to proclaim the gospel, to protect and nurture God's children, to preserve scriptural worship, to promote God's truth, and to present the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, I want to look just at these first two statements, the proclamation of the gospel and the protection and nurture of God's children this week. And to do it by looking at these last two verses of Colossians 1, 28-29. Now, it's somewhat frustrating to pick up the Colossians chapter 1 with the last two verses. Because in the rest of chapter 1, there's such a glorious picture of Jesus Christ and his majesty. But this morning, we will read these last two verses. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Now I want to follow this outline. First, who is the subject of our work? Second, what are the methods of our work? Third, what is the goal of our work? And fourth, what is the strength of our work? The subject of our work, the methods, the goal, and the strength of our work. First, then, who is the subject of our work? Uh, If you listened as the text was read, you know that there's uh, repeated three times in this short section is the phrase, every man. You'll look there with me and you'll see this phrase repeated, won't you? Admonishing every man, teaching every man, so that we may present every man. Now, why the repetition of every man? Well, bear with me here. This repetition is entirely contrary to the ghetto mentality that pervades the Christian church today. This repetition is entirely contrary to the ghetto mentality that pervades the Christian church in the United States today, in which Christians feel that we must hide our religion, that we must hide our mighty God, uh, 
that we must hide his law and his gospel behind the walls of our homes and sanctuaries. When we look at the Apostle Paul, we see that he knows no such limitations, either in the truths he proclaims or in the people to whom he proclaims those truths. The Apostle Paul doesn't stand around wishing that some of his neighbors might have a felt need that he can use to shoehorn in a gospel presentation. But the Apostle Paul goes from city to city proclaiming the gospel. Not sharing the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel. Watch the Apostle Paul in Iconium, where far from a private viewing, he proclaims the gospel in such a way that Scripture tells us, quote, the people of the city were divided. I pray for such a division in the city of Bloomington. In Acts 14, we read, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed both of Jews and of Greeks. And that's where the evangelical church stops reading. But the text continues with verse 2, But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So you see, it's going out of the synagogue. It's not just the Jews. The Jews are in the synagogue. But now the fight goes out into the city. And they embittered them against the brethren. And therefore, they spent a long time there waiting until the conflict died down. And then again, speaking. But that's not what it says. It says, therefore, given this embittering, given the controversy, therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. The apostle, or, uh, John Calvin, one of the images that people have used graphically and that he himself uh, owned of his life was the flame in his heart. And there's nothing, and many, many people have observed this through the centuries, but there's nothing that people will turn out for more than watching some, somebody light themselves on fire. And that's probably the perfect image of what's going on in the pulpit and in the daily teaching and instruction, the bold proclamation of the Apostle Paul and the other brothers. They lit themselves on fire and then God showed himself powerful through them. And then it says, verse 4, but the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the Apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it. I mean, that's almost tongue-in-cheek, don't you think? You know, you'd think if the whole city is becoming embittered to you, that it wouldn't take until they're ready to stone you for you to be aware of the hostility, right? But it says, they became aware of it. And then it says and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. Now, do you know what comes next? It's Acts 14, verses 1 to 7. I haven't read 7 yet. So here they are in a city, and they're bold, they're public, and it's so obnoxious that the Jews go out and try to turn the Gentiles against them, and it gets so intense that they 
proclaim the word all the more boldly. And as they proclaim more boldly, it gets so intense that they start plans to stone them. And they become aware of it. And so, finally, in the nick of time, they leave the city and they go to Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby and the surrounding region. And then what do you think verse 7 says? It's the outline of the book of Acts. Verse 7 says, And there they continue to preach the gospel. Talk about a band of brothers. And we wonder why the church grew. And then, of course, in Bloomington, sitting under the shadow of Indiana University, it's fitting for us to remember Athens, where Paul chose the most public place possible to proclaim Jesus Christ. And it says in Acts 17, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. That should be the motto of many of you. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And again, we would think that it would stop there, but it doesn't. It then says, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And then in verse 22... That memorable statement. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. And so there's no question as you go through the book of Acts who, Jesus, who the Apostle Paul and who the, all of the Apostles address. And it's reiterated here in Colossians chapter 1 where it tells us that the subjects of their work are... All men, every man, every man, every man. Slave and free, high and low, Jew and Greek, rich and poor, male and female, every man. And if we look back to the Great Commission, the final marching orders that Jesus gave to his disciples recorded in Matthew chapter 28, we see there also that Jesus commands that the gospel to be, is to be spread across the world and across time. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so according to Jesus, disciples are to be made of all the nations and this disciple making is to be carried throughout all time, even to the end of the age. Now, what is to comfort the disciples? What is to comfort us when we give ourselves to this work? That Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Mark 16:15. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now, you might wonder, how do I come up with uh, 
applications. And could any of you fail to see the absolute necessary application at this particular time in our country? What's the application? The application has to be the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court, and we're setting aside the whole question of the constitutionality of their judgments, which to me is laughable, but that's a political statement. But let's deal with the spiritual and the eternal position of the Supreme Court. Has it ever occurred to you that these men and women will one day stand before the living God and give an accounting for the specific words of their opinions? We are so intimidated and indoctrinated and, and browbeaten by this, this, this complete uh, wacko thing called separation of church and state that as Christians... We never think to judge the Supreme Court and the decisions it issues on the basis of the moral law of God. It doesn't even occur to us to do this. We're so, we're so attuned to the necessity of any particular nation having ordering principles and laws and government, and we know that Christians are to submit to their government, and so the Supreme Court issues a decision and we submit to it. And even though we might not submit to the particular perversions that they're defending at this particular time, we submit to the notion that that's good law. But let me ask you, is it good law when the Supreme Court, supposedly from the Constitution as its basis, says that a country cannot order itself under the authority of God? The recent Supreme Court decision striking down the Texas laws against sodomy presents us a perfect opportunity to examine our own confidence and courage in relationship to the truth and the person of Jesus Christ. And the authority of Jesus Christ. Do we believe that the law and the gospel of God are good? Or do we think they're bad? Do we believe that they're good news to all men or bad news to all men or good news to some men and bad news to other men? Do we believe that the law and the gospel are God's grace to all mankind or do we think of them as just a private revelation, a sort of special knowledge meant only for those in the know? In other words, a private revelation that's God's reward to those who have earned His blessing or have happened to be born into Christian homes. In a day and a nation when the mantra separation of church and state has almost reduced the church of Jesus Christ and all her glory and authority to simply one more special interest group within the political structure of our nation pleading for freedom to practice our religion in peace without the opposition of the civil authorities. We must remember that Scripture declares in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God! He created us. And if we think that this is just one particular God and there are many gods and many paths, let us remember that this God also declared in His Word, all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now, you can have your choice. Your choice can be diversity or your choice can be the living God. 
But you cannot have diversity in the living God. Because the living God orders everything in His creation according to His character and His will. And the Supreme Court doesn't have a prayer to alter that. And if you think that all the matters of sexual intimacy and the laws governing them are a function just of the particular revelation that God gave to Christians, our own little ghetto, remember this, that when God made the heavens and the earth, the next thing He did was He made all of the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then we read that He made man. And He created Adam. And He saw that it wasn't good that Adam was alone. And then He created Eve. And so, right in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, God made Adam and Eve, and He brought them together. And they were one. One flesh. And so, here's the application of this for Christians who honor the Word of God. The application is that everything pertaining to human sexuality is not a private revelation for Christians, which we only share with each other in Bible studies when somebody shows that they're already converted and now they're ready for more truths. It has always been the function of Christians to bring the truths of God, the blessings of God, the law of God, and the grace of God to bear on the cultures that they live in. And out of that has come the entire tradition of Western law. How do you think sodomy laws came into existence? Do you think sodomy laws came into existence because ancient Greece decided they'd be good for Western democracy? I hope some of you know why it's funny. Or Rome? No, it was as Christians lived in the decadent ancient world that they lived by faith, lived under the authority of Jesus Christ, and they went out and did precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying here. They proclaimed to every man the truths that Scripture reveal. This is what they did. And you know something? Honestly, we are pathetic. We don't have one one-hundredth not one one-thousandth the courage that these men of the early church had. And you say, men, what about women? It's like my dad used to say, behind every good man is a better woman. Priscilla and Aquila. Do you think it gives me strength to stand up and preach? Yes, the Holy Spirit. You know who else? My wife and my daughters, when I have feminists looking at me and shouting me down and despising me, all I have to do is remember Michael and Heather and my wife. These are my daughters and my wife. And I'm strong because I think they're not dumb. They're not wimpy. And they want me to be faithful to the Lord. And so does my mother. 50-year-old man talking of his mother giving him strength preaching. Well, it's true. If the Apostle Paul speaks of every man, we must not speak of just the church. Because it's unfaithful to God. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples 
of all men, teaching them everything I commanded you. And hey, chill out. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, there is absolutely no compromise with the state in America today. And the state really is the hidden God of most Christians. Most Christians have more allegiance to their country than they do to the word and to the authority of Scripture. And there's no better weekend to say it than the 4th of July. And here is what Joe Sobrin says about this. He says, The state today regards everything as its business. Our habits of consumption, even our children's education, including their education about sex. Taken rigorously, the separation of church and state would mean that religion must be excluded from any area of life the state chooses to move into. As C.S. Lewis wrote, when the modern world says to us aloud, you may be religious when you are alone, it adds under its breath, and I will see to it that you are never alone. To make Christianity a private affair while banishing all privacy is to relegate it to the rainbow's end or to the Greek calends. Why must God and God's purpose be eliminated from public discussion? Are believers supposed to pretend he doesn't exist? Or doesn't matter? To assume that is to assume that he's only a theory or abstraction who, contrary to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, has never revealed himself to men. Religious people are even accused of violating the separation of church and state when they act and argue and vote from their convictions. But the separation of church and state is only supposed to be a limitation on the state for the sake of religious freedom itself. To appeal to it in order to inhibit the free exercise of religion, including the application of sacred truth to politics, is to get everything backwards. And listen to how he ends. He says, if God exists, if God exists, he does not exist as we exist. Contingently, as a mere part, however great, of a larger reality. He is sovereign over everything. And Joe Sobrin is an Orthodox Roman Catholic. He is sovereign over everything. And nothing matters more than his will. And whether we like to face it or not, our chief duty is to do His will. The divine will is not something we can set aside as a special department of our lives. And so, speaking specifically, when the Apostle Paul here speaks of every man being the object of his work, his direct statement is connected not with the work of evangelism so much as the work of sanctification. The proclamation of Christ did not stop with conversion, but it went on to sanctification, to taking the believers in the church and to leading them on to grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters today, whether it's the proclamation of the gospel or the call to holiness, it is every man who must be the subject of our work because it was every man that was the subject of Paul's work. There was not one Colossian Christian who was exempt from being the subject of Paul's labors, nor is there any Christian today exempt from the work of those officers that Christ has placed over his church. 
As with Paul, so today, pastors and elders are to carry out their work without selling short the authority they have had delegated to them. None of this, ah, shucks, I'm just a regular kind of guy's stuff inside God's household. We have authority when we speak to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have authority when we speak to those in the church. Now, how do we speak to them? If the subjects are every man, what is the nature of what we have to say? Well, we see that the nature is, the method is, we proclaim, we admonish, and we teach. We proclaim Christ, and then we admonish and teach Again, Jesus says, make disciples. He's giving the Great Commission, and everybody sees the Great Commission as being the central statement of the nature of evangelism. But what is it? What is the nature of evangelism? Well, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And again, evangelicals, not only deny so often the universality of the proclamation of the gospel, reducing it to a private thing, but evangelicals seem incapable of seeing that the proclamation of the gospel involves making disciples and teaching those disciples everything Jesus commanded. We have lived through a century in which evangelism is largely presenting the four spiritual laws asking for a statement of conversion for a prayer, a sinner's prayer, and then saying, all right, you're done, let's move on. Come and help me. And where is the discipleship? Where is the teaching them to obey everything he commanded? Where is the honoring of all of the truths that Jesus proclaimed and that God himself has proclaimed through his word? We proclaim Christ and then we admonish and we teach. This is the gospel. You don't have a gospel if all you have is the wordless book and a sinner's prayer and then bye-bye. It's not the gospel. The gospel is obeying Jesus. He says, make disciples, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now, how is this process of making disciples and teaching summarized in our text. It's summarized with two words, and the two words are admonish and teach. And I want to point out that you could skip over this statement easily and just say yes, just like it says in Matthew that we are to teach them to obey everything that is commanded. But the Holy Spirit chooses particular words for particular reasons, and every word matters. And here the two words are translated in the English, admonish and teach. And these words have very different feelings. The word teach is the same word that we get the word didactic from. And what that word has to do with is taking a, a, a summary of, of true things and imparting them. You know, like, okay... One times one, one times two, or no, two times two, three times three, four. You know, it, it's the multiplication tables. Or it's a system of doctrine. You learn the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Children's Catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. All right? And we teach our children to respond to certain questions. Okay? 
But then there's the other side. The other side is admonish. And I think we all know what admonish means, right? Admonish is the part of teaching we don't really like. Sometimes it's nice to be in a professor's lecture hall with 300 students because you won't get admonished. Unless they have the habit of calling on you by name, but that's, that's, that's a rare bird today. But you come into the church, and if you come into a church and you are not admonished, you are not in a church of Jesus Christ. I mean, how could I say that? Because the text says it. This is the normal habit of the church of Christ. People come in, the gospel's proclaimed, and then they're taught and they're admonished. They're not just taught. It's always the habit of those who have the duty of being authorities to give the upbeat side, but not the downbeat side. And admonishment is, is, is definitely a downbeat side. Admonishing is where you say to your son, Son, how many times have I told you? All right. In other words, son, this is not a new lesson. How many times have I told you when your mother tells you to set the table, you're to do it immediately? Now, there seems to be a habit with you of not obeying promptly. Now, what are we going to do about this, son? Now, he always knew he was to obey. There hasn't been a failure of teaching him, children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. All right? He knows that. So he's had the teaching part, but it's the admonishment that is the proof of the pudding, right? Okay? Any parent who doesn't admonish their child is an unfaithful parent. This is what it says in Hebrews. It says that the father doesn't discipline his son, doesn't love his son. All right? So this whole issue of admonishment is the sine qua known of faithful parenting, fathering and mothering, and it's the sine qua known of faithful church. You don't have elders in your church or pastors if you haven't been admonished. Now, have you been admonished? <laughs> if you've been here long, you've heard my stories about being admonished. I still am, but there are certain memories in childhood, like when Uncle Joe Coughlin took me home because I was a liar. And my father threw up his hands. He'd had it with me, and he sent me home with Uncle Joe. I'll never forget that day. I got admonished. And, and that was the end of my habits of lying. All right, that's admonishment. Now, yesterday, I had the privilege of admonishing a young boy in our church who was defying both his mother and his older brother. Maybe you've had the privilege of admonishing your children in the last 24 hours. The Apostle Paul says this. The Apostle Paul says, we proclaim, we teach, and we admonish. And it is the vision of this church to be faithful to our calling to protect and nurture God's children. We would not be faithful to that calling if we simply dispensed objective truth, but there was never any subject of that truth. And there is a subject. That subject is you. <laughs> you know? God has, in, for some reason, chosen to have you preached to by a man. <laughs> okay? And he didn't need to do that. He could have had jackasses preach to you as he preached to Balaam. He could have had angels. He could have had Jesus live forever and just keep teaching us. But for some reason, God chose for you to have fallen, sinful, disgusting, bad breath men who preach to you 
week in, week out, who admonish you, and as you humble yourself to suck that in, all right, God will make you into conformity to Jesus Christ. You know, I say it with tears that there are many who have rejected this process, who have felt that they should not be instructed by sinful men, who have looked at my sins and the sins of the elders and said, I'll be damned if I'm going to submit to men who are sinners. And you pray that they won't be. But you look at Scripture, and Scripture never knows a man or a woman who is able to set themselves outside the officers of Christ's church and say, I will have no part of them. And make no mistake about it, if your choice is to go to a mega church where no one knows you and no one admonishes you, you are making a choice that you will not be under the authority of elders and pastors. So I don't ever want you to be confused about the decision you're making. That's the decision you're making. Now, it's not a function of size. There are many huge churches through the centuries, over a thousand people, who have been faithful in admonishing individual men and women one by one. But if you choose a church of 17 or a church of 7,000 where you are not admonished, you are not in a church of Jesus Christ. Because it's all through Scripture. You wouldn't have any books in the New Testament if it weren't for the admonishing, particularly individuals, appealing to their conscience, specifically. Now, the subject of our work is every man. The methods, proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching. And then we move to the goal of our work. And the goal of our work is that we will present every man complete in Christ. The goal of our work is not to move them farther than when they were when they came here. The goal of our work is shared often between four, five, six, seven churches. And the goal of the work is shared by all the churches and it's the same. It's that you will be, that I will be, that my children will be complete in Jesus Christ. Complete. The goal isn't that you'll just receive Jesus and then hang for the next 40 years. The goal is that you will be complete. And what a beautiful statement of that completion we got from Andy Anderson this morning. And here's the text he read. He read from Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. And this is what he read. He said... He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to what? To a mature man. The same construction is here. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ And what's the result? Here's the result. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, this is how the work of the church bears fruit. It bears fruit when men and women are presented complete in Christ. And they're complete in Christ when they're no longer tossed around like little babies, not able to discriminate between truth and falsehood, but led astray by all the sophisticated rhetoric that surrounds us. It's everywhere. Our goal is to inoculate you against the twisted minds and thoughts, the perverse generation that Steve Berenzi referred to. And it's a biblical goal to present every man complete in Christ. But finally, as we work on all men, proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching so that they will be presented complete in Christ, what is the strength of our work? And if we look at our text, we'll see that the strength of our work is given at the very end. It says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. In other words, we're not dependent upon the older women or the elders or the deacons. We're not dependent upon our pastors for the power. We're dependent upon Jesus Christ and his spirit for the power. And this is why churches that are biblical have to pray. Because when we pray, we ask for the power of God to come down on us and to vivify, all right? to put life and power into whatever is being done. One of my favorite texts to show this perfect harmony between the work of man and the power of God is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. If you'd turn there with me, please. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You see the love that the, that the pastors and the preachers and the elders and the deacons had for the flock. It is constant through these epistles. And you just see it at the beginning of this verse when the Apostle Paul is going on to the church in Philippi and says, So then, my beloved, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, and the people say, he's being a legalist. No, he's not being a legalist. He loves them. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we must not stop there because he adds this. He says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, yes, these things are too much for us. It is, it is impossible to be faithful in admonishing, especially when you've gotten head-butted by a sheep the thousandth time. And you think, you know, I'll be hanged if I'm going to admonish anymore. And that's what pastors say when they get together. They look at each other and I say, I'll be hanged if I'm going to admonish anymore. Just strict teaching for me from now on. All right, But then you stop and you remember that, yes, it is a hopeless cause. And yes, you are powerless to, to pull it off in any way that produces fruit. But then you remember 
that it's not you. That it's the Holy Spirit working through you and through the older women of the church and through the deacons and through the mothers and the fathers in the home. And just about the time that you're about to write off one particular young man in his teenage years, the power of God comes on that young man. And the obnoxious sort of... I'm thinking of a particular young man. Um, You know, the obnoxious Tim Bailey-like aspect of him. All right? All of a sudden, there's this sweet humility and gentleness that the Spirit of God brings on him. Yeah, he's still all man in some of the most disgusting macho ways. But he's also godly because the Holy Spirit has come on him and he's been changed. And all of a sudden you find yourself falling in love with him. Why? Not because his parents or his pastors and elders instructed him, but because the power of God came into him and vivified. He gave life to him. And all of a sudden, behold how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This church is a church that is dedicated to being faithful in the work of Jesus Christ. We will not limit our message to the safe walls of this sanctuary. We will not do that. You, if you come here, will be commanded to go into your lecture hall, into your classroom, into your factory, and your business, and to proclaim Jesus Christ. All right? We will not be a church that limits itself to giving out didactic truth. We will admonish you. And you, if you're wise and if you're a Christian, you will hunger and thirst wherever you go for a church that will be faithful to this calling. Because you will know that without faithfulness in these areas, you will not be complete in Christ. But you'll never confuse the pastor, the elders, the older women with God. You'll know that their work is only good when the Holy Spirit gives it life. And you will pray that the Holy Spirit will give the churches that are represented here this morning all of the power that will make us complete in Christ. Let's pray.